Hi everybody, welcome back to the History Podcast. So in today's episode, in this episode, we're going to be looking at uh, what I like to call realignment at home and abroad, empire abroad. So we're looking at kind of some changes restructuring that are going to be taking place in America with reforms and such, and also kind of what's going on around the world at the same time. So let's get started. So during the 1880s and 90s, uh, the American political system was starting to come under quite a lot of strain. So there was a man named Moise Ostrogorsky. He was traveling all across the U.S. He was a Russian political scientist and he was coming to see this new democratic experiment in action. And he was saying that these constituted authorities are unequal to what their duty is. And he was saying this experiment had fallen victim to greed, indifference, and just political mediocrity. And there were quite a lot of deeper problems. And it was they had this wide gulf between the rich and poor, a wrenching style of boom and bust with the business cycle, There were unmet needs of African-Americans, women, Indians, a lot of others. And these problems weren't really addressed, let alone resolved at all. So politics was kind of the traditional medium of resolution, but it was grinding into a stalemate, basically. So from 1877 to 1897, American politics rested on this very delicate balance of power that left neither Republicans nor Democrats in control of Congress or the White House. So Republicans had been in the White House for about 12 years, Democrats for eight. There were very close margins of victory in the presidential elections. No president could really count on having a majority of their party in Congress for their entire term because midterm elections would usually oust one or the other party and usually Republicans controlled the Senate Democrats would control the House of Representatives so with the elections being so tight both parties were working very hard to turn out the vote when election day arrived stores were closed businesses shut down and at political clubs in corner saloons, men would be lining up to get voting orders along with free drinks from the war bosses. Fields would go unintended as the farmers would take their families into town, cast their belts, and then bet on kind of what the outcome of the election would be. So an average of nearly 80% of eligible voters would turn out for these presidential elections between 1860 and 1900. It was a figure higher than at any time since. And in that era, however, the electorate was making up a smaller percentage of the population. So about one American in five actually voted in presidential elections from 1876 to 1892. Most were white males. Women could vote in national only elections only in a few of the Western states, a few territories as well. Uh, Beginning in the 1880s, the South would be putting up barriers that eventually disenfranchised African-American voters. Party loyalty rarely wavered. It was the key to electoral success and thus to the stalemate. 
In every election, 16 states voted for Republicans and 14 for Democrats. And only six states, the most important being New York and Idaho, were the results ever really in doubt. <clears throat> so what inspired all this loyalty? Republicans and Democrats did have some similarities, but also differences. So both parties uh, supported business and condemned radicalism. Neither really embattled uh, or offered the embattled workers and farmers much help. But Democrats believed in states' rights and limited government, while Republicans favored federal activism to try and foster and create economic growth. And their strength was in the industrial north. The stronghold of Democrats was the south, where they continually uh, reminded voters that they had led the states out of the old confederacy, or in the old confederacy, they redeemed them from the Republican reconstruction. They championed white supremacy. Republicans dominated the North with strong support from industry and business. They would invoke memories of the Civil War to secure voters, black as well as white. <clears throat> Ethnicity and religion also uh, cemented voter loyalty. Republicans drew on old stock Protestants who feared new immigrants and put their faith in promoting pious behavior. In the Republican Party, they found support for immigration restriction, prohibition, and English-only schools. The Democratic Party attracted urban political machines, their immigrant voters, and the working poor. Often Catholic, these voters saw salvation in following religious rituals, not in dictating personal conduct. But year after year, cultural loyalties of religion, of region, religion, and ethnicity would be shaping and building these allegiances. Outside the two-party system, impassioned reformers often fashioned political instruments of their own. Some formed groups that aligned themselves behind issues rather than parties. Opponents of alcohol created the Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1874 and the Anti-Saloon League in 1893. Champions of women's rights joined the National American Women's Suffrage Association in 1890, uh, which was a reunion of two branches of the women's suffrage movement that had split in 1869. And they actually had the National Women's Suffrage Association and the American Women's Suffrage Association. But in 1890, they merged and just became one. Third political parties might also crystallize around one single concern or a particular group. Those that saw uh, inflation of the currency formed the Greenback Party in 1874. There were angry farmers in the West and South that created the Populist or People's Party in 1892. But all were drawing supporters from both conventional parties, but as single interest groups, they mobilized mi minorities, not majorities. Okay, so in the halls of Congress, attention focused on the well-worn issues of veterans' benefits, appointments, tariffs, and money. The presidency had been weakened by the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, the scandals of Ulysses S. Grant, and the contested victory of Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876. Congress enjoyed the initiative in making policy as the founders intended. Some divisive issues were the bitter legacy of the Civil War. Republicans and Democrats waved symbolic bloody shirts tarring each other with the responsibility for the war. The Civil War also suffered in, or surfaced, sorry, in the lobbying efforts of veterans. The Grand Army of the Republic, which was an organization of more than 400,000 Union soldiers, petitioned Congress for pensions to make up for poor wartime pay and to support the widows and orphans of fallen comrades. By 1900, 
Union Army veterans and their families were receiving $157 million annually. Unintentionally, it turned out to be one of the largest public assistance programs in American history and laid the foundation for the modern welfare state. Neither party cared about welfare programs, but both cared deeply about how to staff the federal offices. From barely 53,000 employees at the end of the Civil War, the federal government had mushroomed into 166,000 by the early 1890s, with far more jobs requiring special skills. But dismantling the reigning spoil system proved difficult for politicians who rewarded faithful supporters with government jobs, regardless of their qualifications. Without such rewards, politicians feared that they could attract neither voters nor money. The spoils system remained in place until it led to the assassination of President James Garfield in 1881 by a frustrated office seeker named Charles Gateau. Congress finally acted in 1883 by passing the Civil Service or Pendleton Act. It created a bipartisan commission to administer competitive examinations for some federal jobs. Later presidents expanded the positions covered. By 1896, almost half of all federal workers came under civil service jurisdiction. The protective tariff also split Congress. As promoters of economic growth, Republicans usually champion tariff on manufactured imports to protect industries at home. Democrats, with their strength in the agrarian South, generally opposed such price protection and instead sought tariff reduction to encourage freer trade, reduce prices on manufactured goods, and cut the federal surplus. In 1890, when Republicans controlled the House, Congress passed the McKinley Tariff. It raised tariffs to all-time highs, but contained a novel twist called reciprocity. The president could lower rates if other countries did the same. Just as divisive was the issue of currency. Until the mid-1800s, money was coined from both gold and silver. The need for more money during the Civil War had led Congress to issue greenbacks, currency printed on paper with a green back. For the next 15 years, Americans argued over whether to print more money, not backed by gold or silver, or to take it out of circulation. Farmers and other debtors favored greenbacks and opposed coining gold alone as a way of inflating prices. Inflation too much money chasing too few goods would reduce the real cost of their debts by raising prices while their debts remain constant. Conversely, bankers and creditors supported sound money, backed by gold to keep prices stable and interest rates high. Fearing inflation, Congress first cut the number of greenbacks and then in 1879 made all remaining paper money convertible into gold. A more heated battle was developing over silver-backed money. By the early 1870s, so little silver was being used that Congress stopped coining it in 1873. The money supply shrank and interest rates rose, leading farmers in debt and other advocates of using silver and gold-backed money to call it the crime of 73. A silver mining boom in Nevada soon revived demands for more silver money. In 1878, the Bland-Allison Act began a limited form of silver coinage, but pressure for unlimited coinage of silver, coining all silver presented at U.S. mints, mounted as silver production quadrupled between 1870 and 1890, and the price of silver plummeted. This was part of the uh, like flute-free silver movement. In 1890, pressure for silver peaked in the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. It obligated the government to buy 4.5 million ounces of silver every month. Paper tender called treasury notes redeemable in either gold or silver would pay for it. The compromise t satisfied both sides only temporarily. 
From the 1870s through the 1890s, a string of near-anonymous presidents presided over the country. Not all were mere caretakers. Some tried to revive the office, but Congress continued to curb the executive and control policy. Republican Rutherford B. Hayes was the first of the Ohio dynasty, which included three presidents from 1876 to 1900. Once elected, Hayes moved quickly to end Reconstruction and tried unsuccessfully to woo Southern Democrats with promises of economic support. His pursuit of civil service reform ended only in splitting his party between stalwarts who favored the spoil system and half-breeds who opposed it. Hayes left office after a single term, relieved to be out of a scrape. In 1880, Republican James Garfield, another Ohioan, succeeded Hayes by only a handful of votes. He spent his first hundred days in the White House besieged by office hunters and failing to placate the rival sections of his party. After Garfield's assassination only six months into his term, Chester A. Arthur, the spoilsman's spoilsman, became president. To everyone's surprise, the dapper Arthur turned out to be an honest president who broke with machine politicians. He worked to lower the tariff, warmly endorsed the new Civil Service or Pendleton Act, and reduced the federal surplus by beginning construction of a modern navy. Such even-handed administration left him little chance for renomination by divided party leaders in 1884. The election of 1884 was one of the dirtiest ever waged. Senator James Blaine, the beloved plumed knight from Maine and leader of the half-breeds, ran against Democrat Grover Cleveland, the former governor of New York. Despite superb talents as a leader and go vote-getter, Blaine was haunted by charges of illegal favoritism for the Little Rock and Fort Smith Railroad. For his part, Grover the Good had built reputation for honesty by fighting corruption and the spoil system in New York. Cleveland works so hard that he remains within doors, constantly eats and works, eats and works, and works and eats. A reporter in New York once quoted. But he spent enough time away from his desk to father an illegitimate child. Uh-oh. In the last week of the tight race, the Irish vote in New York swung to the Democrats when a local Protestant minister labeled them the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion, which translated to like alcoholism or alcohol, Catholicism, and the Civil War. New York went to Cleveland and with it the election. Democrats crowded over where to find the bachelor now. But yeah, he was a father, you know. Cleveland was the first Democrat elected to the White House since James Buchanan in 1856, and he was more active than many of his predecessors. He pleased reformers by expanding the civil service. His devotion to gold, economy, and efficiency earned him praise from business. He supported the growth of federal power by endorsing the Interstate Commerce Act in 1887, new agricultural research, and federal arbitration of labor disputes. Still, his activism remained limited. He vetoed two of every three bills brought to him, more than twice the number vetoed by all of his predecessors. Toward the end of his term, embarrassed by the large federal surplus, Cleveland finally reasserted himself by attacking the tariff. But the Republican-controlled Senate blocked his attempt to lower it. In 1888, Republicans nominated a sturdy defender of tariffs, Benjamin Harrison, the grandson of President William Henry Harrison. Cleveland won a plurality of the popular vote, which a plurality is where you get more votes than any other candidate, but less than half of all the votes cast. When you receive more than half of the votes, that's a majority. So, so Cleveland did get the plurality of the popular vote, but he lost in the Electoral College. And Harrison's colleagues would call him the human iceberg 
and said he worked hard and reasonably well with Congress, turned the White House into a well-run office. He helped to shape the Sherman Silver Purchase Act in 1890, kept abreast of the McKinley Tariff in the same year, and accepted the Sherman Antitrust Act this same year as well. And it was all to try and limit the size of big businesses. So by the end of Harrison's term in 1892, Congress had completed its most productive session of the era, including the first billion-dollar peacetime budget. To Democratic jeers of a billion-dollar Congress, Republican House Speaker Thomas Reed shot back, this is a billion-dollar country. Despite growing expenditures and more legislation, most people expected little from the federal government. Few newspapers even bothered to send correspondents to Washington. Public pressure to curb the excesses of the new industrial order mounted closer to home in state and city governments. Experimental and often effective state programs at least began to grapple with the problems of corporate power, discriminatory railroad rates, and political corruption and urban disorder. Starting in 1869 with Massachusetts, states established commissions to investigate and regulate industry, especially railroads. This was America's first business, big business. By the turn of the century, almost two-thirds of the states had them. The first commissions gathered and publicized information on shipping rates and business practices and furnished advice about public policy but had little power. In the Midwest, on the Great Plains, and in the Far West, merchants and farmers pressed state governments to reduce railroad rates and stop the rebates given to large shippers. On the West Coast and in the Midwest, state legislatures empowered commissions to end rebates and monitor rates. In 1870, Illinois became the first of several states to define railroads as public highways subject to public regulation, including setting maximum rates. So, in 1890s, all the uh, politics of stalemate cracked as the patience of the farmers across the south and the western plains finally gave out. Beginning in the 1880s, a sharp depression drove down agricultural prices, pushed up surpluses, and forced thousands from their land. Farmers also suffer from a great deal more, including heavy mortgages, widespread poverty, and railroad rates that discriminated against them. In 1890, their resentment boiled over. An agrarian revolt called populism, swept across the political landscape and broke the stalemate of the previous 20 years. So populism is this political outlook that supports the rights and powers of the common people in opposition to the interests of the privileged elite. So the revolt of the farmers stirred first one, first on the southern frontier, spreading eastward from Texas through the rest of the old confederacy and then west across the plains. Farmers blamed their troubles on obvious inequalities. Manufacturers protected by the tariff, railroads charging sky-high rates, bankers who held their mounting debts, and expensive intermediaries such as grain elevator operators and millers who stored and processed all the farm commodities. All seemed to profit at the expense of the farmers. The true picture was more complex. The tariff protected industrial goods but also supported some farm commodities. Railroad rates, however high, actually fell from 1865 to 1890. And although mortgages were heavy, most were short, no more than four years, farmers often refinanced them, using the money to buy more land and machinery, which only increased their debt. Millers and operators of grain elevators earned handsome profits, yet every year more of them came under state regulation. In hard times, when debts mounted and children went hungry, complexity mattered little. And in the South, many poor farmers seemed condemned to hard times forever. 
A credit crunch lay at the root of the problem since most southern farmers had to borrow money to plant and harvest their crops. The inequities of sharecropping and the crop lien system forced them deeper into debt. When crop prices fell, farmers borrowed still more, stretching the financial resources of the South beyond their meager limits. Within a few years after the Civil War, Massachusetts banks had five times as much money as all the banks of the old Confederacy. Beginning in the 1870s, nearly 100,000 debt-ridden farmers a year picked up states across the Deep South and fled to Texas to escape the system, only to find it waiting for them. Others stood and fought, as one pamphlet exhorted in 1889, not with glittering musket, flaming sword, and deadly cannon, but with a silent, potent, and all-powerful ballot. So before farmers could vote together, they had to get together. Life on the farm was harsh and isolated. Such conditions would shock a man named Oliver Hudson Kelly as he traveled across the South after the Civil War. In 1867, the young government clerk founded the Patrons of Husbandry to brighten the lives of farmers and broaden their horizons. Local chapters, called Granges, brought a dozen or so farmers and their families together to pray, sing, and learn new farming techniques. The Grangers sponsored fairs, picnics, dances, lectures, anything to break the isolation of farm life. After a slow start, the Patrons of Husbandry grew quickly. By 1875, there were 800,000 members in 20,000 locales, most in the Midwest, South, and Southwest. At first, the Grangers swore off politics, but in a pattern often repeated, socializing led to a recognition of common problems and recognition to economic and then political solutions. By pulling their money for supplies and equipment to store and market their crops, for example, Grangers sought to avoid the high charges of intermediaries. By the early 1870s, they were also lobbying Midwestern legislatures to adopt Granger laws, regulating rates charged by railroads, grain elevator operators, and other middlemen. Eight Granger cases came before the Supreme Court in the 1870s to test the new regulatory measures. The most important, Munn v. Illinois in 1877, upheld the right of Illinois to regulate private property devoted to a public use, in this case, giant silos used for storing grain. Later decisions allowed state regulation of railroads, but only the interstate or only within state lines. Congress responded in 1887 by creating the Interstate Commerce Commission, a federal agency to regulate commerce across state boundaries. In practice, it had little power, but it was a key step toward establishing the right to regulate corporations. Slumping prices in the 1870s and 1880s bred new farm organizations. Slowly, they blended into what the press called the Alliance Movement. The Southern Alliance, formed in Texas in 1875, spread rapidly after Dr. Charles W. McCune took command in 1886. A doctor and lawyer as well as a farmer, McCune planned to expand the state's network of local chapters or sub-alliances into a national network of state alliance exchanges. The exchanges pooled resources and jointly owned businesses for buying and selling, milling and storing, banking, and manufacturing. Soon, the Southern Alliance was publicizing its activities in local newspapers, publishing a journal, and sending lecturers across the country. For a brief period, between 1886 and 1892, the Alliance cooperatives, as the jointly owned businesses were called, multiplied throughout the South. They grew to more than a million members and challenged accepted ways of doing business. McCune claimed that his new Texas exchange saved members 40% on plows and 30% on wagons, but most Alliance cooperatives were managed by farmers without the time or experience to succeed. 
Usually opposed by local merchants, the ventures eventually failed. Although the Southern Alliance admitted no African Americans, it did encourage them to organize. A small group of black and white Texans founded the Colored Farmers National Alliance and Cooperative Union in 1886. By 1891, a quarter of a million black farmers had joined. Their operations were largely secret, since public action often brought swift retaliation from white supremacists. When the Colored Farmers Alliance organized a strike of black cotton pickers near Memphis in 1891, white mobs hunted down and lynched 15 strikers. The murders went unpunished, and the Colored Alliance began to founder. The key to success for what soon became known as the National Farmers Alliance lay not in organization, but in leadership. Alliance lecturers fanned out across the South and the Great Plains, creating sub-alliances and teaching new members about finance and cooperative businesses. Women were often as active as men, sometimes more active. In the summer of 1890 alone, Alliance organizer Mary Elizabeth Lease, the Kansas Pythoness, Pythoness, sorry, known for her biting attacks on big business, gave 160 speeches. In 1890, members of the Alliance met in Ocala, Florida, and issued the Ocala Demands. The manifesto reflected the deep distrust of the money power. Large corporations and banks whose financial clout gave them the ability to manipulate markets. The Ocala Demands called on government to correct such abuses by reducing tariffs, abolishing national banks, regulating railroads, and coining silver freely. The platform also demanded a federal income tax to counteract land taxes and the popular election of sen senators to make government more responsive to the public. The most innovative feature came from Charles McCune. His sub-treasury system would have required the federal government to furnish warehouses for storing crops until prices rose and low interest loans to tide farmers over. Under such a system, farmers would no longer have to sell in a low-priced gutted market as they did under the crop lien system, and they could expand the money supply simply by borrowing at harvest time. In the off-year elections of 1890, the old parties faced hostile farmers across the nation. In the South, the Alliance worked within the Democratic Party and elected four governors, won eight legislatures, and sent 44 members of the House and three senators to Washington. In the Midwest, newly created farmer parties elected five representatives and two senators in Kansas and South Dakota and took over both houses of the Nebraska legislature. In February 1892, as the presidential election year opened, a convention of 900 labor, feminist, farm, and other reform delegates, 100 of them which were black, met in St. Louis. They founded the People's or Populist Party. Open, they said to all toilers. They called for another convention to nominate a presidential ticket. Initially, Southern populists held back, clinging to their strategy of working within the Democratic Party, but when newly elected Democrats failed to support alliance programs, Southern leaders such as Tom Watson of Georgia abandoned the Democrats and began recruiting black and white farmers for the populists. Although a wealthy farmer, Watson sympathized with the poor of both races. The National Convention of Populists met in Omaha, Nebraska on Independence Day, 1892. Their impassioned platform promised to return government to the hands of the plain people. Planks advocated the sub-treasury plan, unlimited coinage of silver, as well as an increase in the money supply, direct election of senators, and income tax and government ownership of railroads, telegraph, and telephone. To attract wage owners, 
the party endorsed the eight-hour workday, restriction of immigration, and a ban on the use of Pinkerton detectives in labor disputes. For the Pinkertons had engaged in a savage gun battle with strikers that year at Andrew Carnegie's Homestead Steel Plant. Delegates rallied behind the old Greenbacker and Union General James B. Weaver, carefully balancing their presidential nomination with a one-legged Confederate veteran as his running mate. The populace enlivened the otherwise dull campaign as Democrat Grover Cleveland and Republican incumbent Benjamin Harrison refought the election of 1888. This time, however, Cleveland won, and for the first time since the Civil War, Democrats gained control of both houses of Congress. The populace, too, enjoyed some success. Weaver became the first third-party candidate to poll over a million votes in a presidential election. Populists elected three governors, five senators, ten representatives, and nearly 1,500 members of state legislatures. Despite these short-term strengths, the election revealed dangerous longer-term weaknesses in the People's Party. A campaign of intimidation and repression hurt the People's Party in the South, where Tom Watson's courtship of blacks appalled white Democrats. In the North, populists failed to win over labor and most city dwellers. Both were concerned with family budgets, not the problems of farmers in the downtrodden. The darker side of populism also put off many Americans. Its rhetoric, its rhetoric was often violent and laced with anti-immigrant nativist slurs. It spoke ominously of conspiracies and stridently in favor of immigration restriction. In fact, the alliance lost members an omen of defeats to come. But for the president, or but for the present, the People's Party had demonstrated two conflicting truths. How far from the needs of many ordinary Americans the two parties had drifted and how difficult it would be to break their power. On May 1st, 1893, President Cleveland was in Chicago to throw the switch that set ablaze 10,000 electric bulbs and opened the world's Columbian Exposition. Four days later, a wave of bankruptcies destroyed major firms across the country and stock prices sank to all-time lows, setting off the Depression of 1893. At first, Chicago staved off the worst thanks to the businesses generated by the World's Fair, but when its doors closed in October, thousands of workers found themselves without a job. Chicago's mayor estimated the number of unemployed in the city to be near 200,000. He had some first-hand experience on which to base his calculations. Every night, desperate men slept on the floors and stairways of City Hall, and every police station in the city put up to 60 to 100 additional homeless. The sharp contrast between the exposition's white city and the nation's economic misery demonstrated the inability of the political system to smooth out the economy cycle of boom and bust. The new industrial order had brought prosperity by increasing production, opening markets, and tying Americans closer together. But in 1893, the price of interdependence came due. A major downturn in one era affected area affected the other sectors of the economy. Overexpansion led to a massive contraction, and with no way to control swings in the business cycle, depression came on a scale as large as that of the booming prosperity. Out of the crisis emerged a political realignment that left the Republican Party in control of national politics. The Depression of 1893, the deepest the nation had yet undergone, lasted until 1897. Railroad baron and descendant of two presidents, Charles Francis Adams Jr., called it a convulsion, but the country experienced it as crushing idleness. By the end of 1894, unemployment hit nearly 20%. No government agency offered any help. The federal government turned a deaf ear to cries for help. While the government should patriotically and cheerfully support their government, President Cleveland declared, its functions do not include the support of the people. The states offered little more. Relief, like poverty, was considered a private matter. 
The burden fell on local charities, benevolent societies, churches, labor unions, and ward bosses. Others were less charitable. The popular preacher Henry Ward Beecher told his congregation what most Americans believe. No man in this land suffers from poverty unless it be more than his fault, unless it be his sin. But the scale of hardship was so great, its targets so random that anyone could be thrown out of work, an industrious neighbor, a factory foreman with 20 years on the job, a bank president. Older attitudes about sinfulness and personal responsibility for poverty began to give way to new ideas about its social origins and the obligation of public agencies to help. Even before the Depression, rumblings of unrest had begun to roll across the country. The Great Railroad Strike of 1877 ignited nearly two decades of labor strife. After 1893, discontent mounted as wages were cut, employees laid off, and factories closed. During the first year of the Depression, 1,400 strikes sent more than half a million workers from their jobs. It was the closest the country had ever come to class warfare. Uneasy business executives and politicians saw radicalism and the possibility of revolution in every strike. But the Depression of 1893 unleashed another force, popular discontent. Too often, they simply ignored it. In the spring of 1894, General Jacob Coxey, a 39-year-old populist and factory owner, proved the point. On Easter Sunday, he launched the Tramps March on Washington from Massillon, Ohio. His Commonwealth Army of Christ, some 500 men, women, and children, descended on Washington to offer a petition with boots on for a federal program of public works. Security around the White House tightened as other armies of unemployment unemployed mobilized. On May 1st, Coxey's troops, armed with clubs of peace, massed at the foot of the Capitol. When Coxey entered the grounds, a hundred mounted police routed the protesters and arrested him for trespassing. Nothing significant came of the protest other than the signal a growing demand for government aid. Federal help was not to be found. President Cleveland had barely moved into the White House when the Depression struck. The country blamed him. He blamed Silver. In his view, the Sherman Silver Antitrust or Purchase Act of 1890 had shaken business confidence by forcing the government to use its shrinking reserves of gold to purchase, though not coin, silver. Repeal of the act, Cleveland believed, was the way to build gold reserves and store com- restore confidence. After bitter debate, Congress complied. But this economic tinkering only strengthened the resolve of silver rights and the Democratic Party to overwhelm Cleveland's conservative gold wing. Worse for the president, repeal of silver purchases brought no economic revival and cost the Democrats in Congress. In the short run, abandoning silver hurt the economy by contracting the money supply just when expansion might have stimulated it by providing needed credit. As panic and unemployment spread, Cleveland's popularity wilted. Democrats were buried in the congressional elections of 1894, dropping moralistic reforms and stressing national activism. Republicans won control of both the House and the Senate. With the Democrats confined to the South, the politics of stalemate was over. All that remained for the Republican Party was to capture the White House in 1896. The campaign of 1896 quickly became a battle of the standards. Both major parties obsessed over whether gold alone or gold and silver should become the monetary standard. Most Republicans saw gold as a stable base for building business, confidence, and economic prosperity. They adopted a platform calling for sound money supported by gold. Their candidate, Governor William McKinley of Ohio, cautiously supported the gold plank and firmly believed in high tariffs to protect American industry. Silver rights campaigned for free and independent coinage of silver, in which the Treasury freely minted all the silver presented to it, independent of other nations. 
They believed increasing the supply of money would aid debtors, especially farmers, by raising the prices of their commodities, lower interest rates, and bring about economic recovery, or so their theory went. The free silver movement was more than a monetary theory. It was a symbolic protest of region and class, of the agricultural south and west against the commercial northeast, of debt-ridden farm folk against industrialists and financiers, of have-nots against the haves. Silverites pressed their case like preachers exhorting their flocks, nowhere more effectively than in William Harvey's best-selling pamphlet, Coins Financial School, from 1894. It reached tens of thousands of readers with the common sense of coin, its young hero, fighting for silver. At the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, William Jennings Bryan of Nebraska was ready to fight as well. Just 36 years old, Bryan looked like a young divine tall, slender, handsome, with a rich, melodic voice that reached the back rows of the largest halls, no small asset in the days before electric amplification. He had served two terms in Congress and worked as a journalist. He favored low tariffs, opposed the pro-gold Cleveland, and came out belatedly for free silver. Systematically, he coordinated a quiet fight for his nomination. Silver rights controlled the convention from the start. They paraded with silver banners, wore silver buttons, and rode a plank into the anti-Cleveland platform calling for free and unlimited coinage of the metal. The high point came when Bryan stepped to the lectern and offered himself to a cause as holy as the cause of liberty, the cause of humanity. The crowd was in a near frenzy as he reached the dramatic climax and spread his arm in mock crucifixion. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. No condemnation of a single gold standard could have been stronger. The next day, the convention nominated Bryan for president. Populists were in a quandary. They expected the Democrats to stick with Cleveland and gold, sending unhappy Silverites headlong into their camp. Instead, the Democrats stole their thunder by endorsing Silver and nominating Bryan. If we fuse with the Democrats, we are sunk, complained one populist. If we don't fuse, all the silver men we have will leave us for the more powerful Democrats. At a bitter convention, fusionists nominated Bryan for president. The best anti-fusionists could do was drop the Democrats' vice presidential candidate in favor of the fiery agrarian rebel from Georgia, Tom Watson. <coughs> Bryan knew he faced an uphill battle. Mounting an aggressive campaign that would be initiated in the future, he traveled... Uh, sorry... He traveled 18,000 miles by train, gave as many as 30 speeches a day, and reached perhaps 3 million people in 27 states. The nomination of the People's Party actually did more harm than good by labeling Bryan a populist, which he was not, and a radical, which he definitely was not. Devoted to the plain people, the great commoner spoke for rural America and Jeffersonian values. Small farmers, small towns, small government. McKinley knew he could not compete with Bryan's barnstorming. He contented himself with sedate speeches from his front porch in Canton, Ohio. The folksy appearance of the campaign belied its reality. From the beginning, campaign strategist Marcus Alonzo Hanna, a talented Ohio industrialist, relied on modern techniques of organization and marketing. He advertised McKinley, said Theodore Roosevelt, as if he were patent medicine. The well-financed campaign brought to Canton tens of thousands who cheered the candidates' promises of a full dinner pail. Hannah saturated the country with millions of leaflets, along with 1,400 speakers attacking free trade and free silver. McKinley won in a walk, with the first majority of the popular vote since Ulysses S. Grant in 1872. 
the election proved to be one of the most critical in the Republic's history. Over the previous three decades, political life had been characterized by vibrant campaigns, slim party margins, high voter turnout, and low-profile presidents. The election of 1896 signaled a new era of shrinking party loyalties and voter turnout, stronger presidents, and Republican rule. McKinley's victory broke the political stalemate and forged a powerful coalition that dominated politics for the next 30 years. It rested on the industrial cities of the Northeast and Midwest and combined old support from businesses, farmers, and Union Army veterans with broader backing from industrial wage earners. The Democrats controlled little but the South, and the populace virtually vanished, but not before leaving a compound legacy, as a catalyst for political change, a cry for federal action, and a prelude to a new age of reform. In 1892, despite the stumping of populists like Tom Watson, African Americans cast their vote ballots for Republicans, when they could vote at all. Increasingly, their voting rights were being curtailed across the South. As the century drew to a close, long-standing racialism, categorizing people on the basis of race, deepened. The arrival of new immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe and the acquisition of new overseas colonies, often populated by people of color, encouraged prejudices that stridently rationalized white supremacy, segregation, and other forms of racial control. In the South, racism was enlisted in a political purpose, preventing an alliance of poor blacks and whites that might topple white conservative Democrats. Thus, the white supremacy campaign was coupled with a drive to deprive poor Southerners, black or white, of their right to vote. Ostensibly directed to African Americans, these campaigns had the broader aim of quashing rebellion from below. Mississippi, where Democrats had led the move to redeem their state from Republican Reconstruction, took the lead in disenfranchising or depriving African Americans of the right to vote. In 1890, a new state constitution required voters to pay a poll tax and pass a literacy test, which eliminated the great majority of black voters. Conservative Democrats favored the plan because it also reduced the voting of poor whites, who were likely to join opposition parties. Before the new constitution went into effect, Mississippi contained more than 250,000 eligible voters. By 1892, after its adoption, there were fewer than 77,000. Between 1895 and 1908, white supremacy and disenfranchisement campaigns won out in every southern state, barring many poor whites from voting, as well as blacks. The white supremacy and disenfranchisement campaigns had one final consequence. They split rebellious whites from blacks, as the fate of Tom Watson demonstrated. Only a dozen years after his biracial campaign of 1892, Watson was promoting black disfranchisement in Georgia. Like, many, like other Southern populists, Watson returned to the Democratic Party still hoping to help poor whites, but only by playing a powerful race card could he hope to win election. In 1920, after a decade of baiting blacks as well as Catholics and Jews, the Georgia firebrand was elected to the Senate. Watson, who began with such high racial ideals, gained power by abandoning them. To mount a successful crusade for disenfranchisement, white conservatives inflamed racial passions. They staged white supremacy jubilees and peppered newspaper editorials with complaints of bumptious and impudent African Americans. The number of black lynchings by whites peaked during the 1890s, averaging over 100 a year for the decade. Most took place in the South. Under such circumstances, African Americans worked out their own responses to the climate of intolerance. Ida B. Wells, a black woman born into slavery, turned her talents into a nationwide campaign against lynching when a friend and two of his partners in the People's Grocery were brutally murdered after a fight with a white competitor in 1892. 
She spent much of her time educating Americans about the use of lynching and other forms of mob violence as devices for terrorizing African Americans. Though her lobbying failed to produce a federal anti-lynching law, Wells did help organize black women eventually into the National Association of Colored Women in 1896. It supported wide-ranging reforms, including education, housing, health care, and, of course, anti-lynching. Wells' campaign focused on mob violence, but another former slave, Booker T. Washington, emphasized the need for accepting the prevailing framework for race relations and working within it. I love this South, he reassured an audience of white and black Southerners in Atlanta in 1895. He conceded that white prejudice existed throughout the region, but nonetheless counseled African Americans to work for their economic betterment through manual labor. Every laborer who learned a trade, every farmer who tilled the land could increase his or her savings. Those earnings amounted to a little green ballot that no one will throw out or refuse to count. Toward that end, Washington founded the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama in 1881. It stressed vocational skills for farming, manual trades, and industrial work. Many white Americans hailed what one black critic called Washington's Atlantic Compromise, for it struck the note of patient humility they were eager to hear. For African Americans, it made the best of a bad situation. Washington, an astute politician, discovered that philanthropists across the nation hoped to make Tuskegee an example of their generosity. He was the guest of Andrew Carnegie at his imposing Skibo Castle in Scotland. California railroad magnate Carl's Huntington became his friend, as did other business executives eager to discuss public and social questions. Throughout, Washington preached accommodation to the racial caste system. He accepted segregation as long as separation or separate facilities were equal and qualifications on voting if they applied to white citizens as well. Above all, Washington sought economic self-improvement for common black folk in fields and factories. In 1900, he organized the National Negro Business League to help establish black businessmen as the leaders of their people. The rapid growth of local chapters, 320 by 1907, extended his influence across the country. In the solid South, as well as an openly racialized North, it was Washington's restrained approach that articulated an agenda for most African Americans. An all-white Democratic Party split the biracial coalition of the early 1890s between black and white populists. White Democrats dominated the South, but stayed a minority in national politics. In William McKinley, Republicans found a skillful chief with a national agenda and personal charm. He cultivated news reporters and openly walked the streets of Washington. He courted the public with handshakes and flowers plucked from his lapel. Firmly but delicately, he curbed the power of state bosses. When necessary, he even prodded Congress into action. In all these ways, he foreshadowed modern presidents who would act as party leaders rather than ex- executive caretakers. Fortune at first smiled on McKinley. When he entered the White House, the economy had already begun its recovery. Factory orders were slowly increasing and unemployment dropped. Farm prices climbed. New discoveries of gold in Alaska and South Africa expanded the supply of money without causing gold bugs to panic that it was being destabilized by silver. Freed from the burdens of the economic crisis, McKinley called a special session of Congress to increase the tariff as he had promised during his campaign. In 1897, the Dingley Tariff raised protective rates to their highest levels in history, but included a provision for reciprocity as a concession to opponents that allowed U.S. tariffs to come down if other nations lowered theirs. 
McKinley also sought a solution for resolving railroad strikes before they turned violent. The Erdman Act of 1898 set up machinery for government arbitration of labor disputes with railroads. McKinley even began laying plans for stronger regulation of trusts. The, name, the same expansiveness that had pushed an industrial nation across the continent displayed its wares at Chicago's World's Fair, and shipped grain and cotton abroad was also drawing the country into a race for empire and a war with Spain. Regulation and an age of reform would just have to wait. So the war with Spain was only the affair of the moment that turned American attention abroad. Underlying the conflict were larger forces linking the United States to the world economy and international events. By the 1890s, southern farmers were exporting half their cotton crop to factories worldwide. Wheat farmers earned some 30 to 40 percent of their income from foreign markets. John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company shipped about two-thirds of its refined products overseas, and Cyrus McCormick supplied Russian farmers with his famous reaper for harvesting crops. More than commerce turned American eyes overseas. Since the 1840s, expansionists had spoken of a divine destiny to overspread the North American continent. Some Americans still cast covetous eyes at Canada to the north and Mexico and Cuba to the south. The boldest dreamed of an empire in more distant lands. The scramble for empire was well underway by the time the Americans, Japanese, and Germans entered the race in the late 19th century. Spain and Portugal still clung to the remnants of their 17th century colonial empires. Meanwhile, England, France, and Russia accelerated their drive to control foreign peoples and lands. The late 19th century became the new age of imperialism because weapons technology and new networks of communication, transportation, and commerce brought the prospect of effective, truly global empires within reach. Imperialism is the acquisition of control over the government and the economy of another nation, usually by conquest. So the speed and efficiency with which Europeans took over in the Niger and Congo basins of Africa in the 1880s prompted many Americans to argue for this European-style imperialism of conquest and possession. Germany, Japan, and Belgium were eagerly joining the hunt for colonies, but other Americans preferred a more indirect imperialism that exported products, ideas, and influence. To them, this American-style imperialism seemed somehow purer, for they could portray themselves as bearers of their long-cherished values of democracy, free enterprise capitalism, and Christianity. While Americans tried to justify imperial control in the name of such values, social, economic, and political forces were drawing them rapidly into a hard-knuckled race for empire. The growth of industrial networks linked them to international markets as never before. With economic systems more tightly knit and political systems more responsive to industrialists and financiers, a rush for markets in distant lands was perhaps unavoidable. Although the climate for expansion and imperialism was present at the end of the 19th century, the small farmer or steel worker was little concerned with how the United States advanced its goals abroad. An elite group of Christian missionaries, intellectuals, and business leaders and commercial farmers joined the Navy careerists to shape American imperialism. They lobbied the White House and Congress where foreign policy was made and the state and war departments where it was carried out. The success of imperial ventures depended on a strong navy, whether to project American might abroad or to guard the sea lanes of commerce. But by 1880, the once proud Civil War fleet of more than 600 warships was rotting from neglect. The U.S. Navy ranked 12th in the world, behind Denmark and Chile. The United States had a coastal fleet, but no functional group of vessels to protect its interests abroad. Unhappy naval officers combined with trade-hungry business leaders 
to press Congress for a modern Navy. Alfred Thayer Mahan, a Navy captain and later admiral, formulated their ideas into a widely accepted theory of navalism, which is theories of warfare and trade that rely on the nation's Navy as a principal instrument of policy. In The Influence of Sea Power Upon History from 1890, Mahan argued that great nations were seafaring powers that relied on foreign trade for wealth and might. The only way to protect foreign markets, Mahan reasoned, was with large cruisers and battleships. These ships, operating far from American shores, would need coaling stations and other facilities to resupply them throughout the world. Mahan's logic was so persuasive and the profits to be reaped by American factories so great that in the 1880s, Congress finally acted. It launched a program to rebuild the old wood and sail navy with steam vessels made of steel. By 1900, the U.S. Navy ranked third in the world. With a modern navy, the country at least had the means to become an imperial power. Protestant missionaries provided a spiritual rationale that complemented Mahan's navalism. Because missionaries often encountered people whose cultural differences made them unreceptive to Christianity, many thought that the natives first had to become Western in culture before becoming true believers. They introduced Western goods, education, and systems of government administration, any civilizing medium, as one minister remarked. Yet most American missionaries were not territorial imperialists. They eagerly took up what they called the white man's burden of civilizing the colored races of the world, but opposed direct military or political intervention. From scholars, academics, and scientists came racial theories to justify the expansion. Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species from 1859 have popularized the notion that among animal species, the fittest survive through a process of natural selection. Social Darwinists argued that the same laws of survival govern the social order. When applied aggressively, social Darwinism was used to justify theories of white supremacy as well as the slaughter and enslavement of non-white native peoples who resisted conquest. When combined with the civilizing white man's burden of Christian missionaries, African, or sorry, American imperialism, included uplifting natives by spreading Western ideas, religion, and government. Perhaps more compelling than either racial or religious motives for American expansion was the need for trade. The business cycle of boom and bust reminded Americans of the unpredictability of their economy. In hard times, people sought salvation wherever they could, and one obvious road to economic redemption lay in markets abroad. With American companies outgrowing the home market, explained the National Association of Manufacturers, expansion of our foreign trade is the only promise of relief. No one did more to initiate the idea of a new empire of commerce for the United States than William Henry Seward, Secretary of State under Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson. Seward believed that empire has made its way constantly westward until the tides of renewed and decaying civilizations of the world meet on the shores of the Pacific Ocean. The United States must be prepared to win supremacy in Asia, not by planting colonies or sending troops, but by pursuing commerce. Equal access to foreign markets, often called the open door, guided American policy in Asia and made Seward's strategy truly revolutionary. While he pursued ties to Japan, Korea, and China, Seward promoted a transcontinental railroad at home and a canal across the Central American Isthmus. Link by link, he was trying to connect eastern factories to western ports in the United States and from there to markets in Asia. In pursuit of these goals, Seward made two acquisitions in 1867. Midway Island in the Pacific, and Alaska. Midway was unimportant by itself, its value lay in being a way station across the Pacific not far from Hawaii, where missionary planters were already establishing an American presence. Critics called Alaska Seward's Folly, but Folly turned out to be a fortune. 
He paid roughly two cents an acre for mineral-rich territory twice the size of Texas. Seward's conviction that the future of the United States lay in the Pacific and Asia flourished only in the 1890s. By then, Mahan had provided the naval theory necessary to make the leap, and the vanishing American frontier supplied an economic rationale for extending Manifest Destiny beyond continental borders of the nation. But in the 1880s, Secretary of State James G. Blaine began to look southward for ways to expand American trade and influence into Central and South America, where Great Britain had interests of its own to protect. Blaine launched a campaign to cancel the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty of 1850, which shared rights with Great Britain to any canal built in Central America. In 1901, Great Britain finally gave up its interest in building a canal across the Central American Isthmus in return for a U.S. promise to open it to ships of all nations. Blaine also tried to shift Central American imports from British to U.S. goods by proposing that a customs union he created to reduce trade barriers in the Americas. His efforts resulted only in a weak Pan-American union to foster peaceful understanding in the region. If American expansionists wanted to extend trade across the Pacific to China, Hawaii was the crucial link. It afforded a fine naval base and a refueling station along the route to Asia. In 1893, American sugar planters overthrew the recently enthroned Queen Liliuokalani, a Hawaiian nationalist eager to rid the island of American influence. Their success was ensured when a contingent of U.S. Marines arrived ashore on the pretext of protecting American lives. Eager to avoid the McKinley Tariff's new tax on sugar imported into the United States, planters lobbied for the annexation of Hawaii, but President Cleveland refused. He was no foe of expansion, but was, as his Secretary of State noted, unalterably opposed to stealing territory or of annexing people against their consent and the people of Hawaii do not favor annexation. The idea of incorporating the non-white population also troubled Cleveland. For a time, matters stood in limbo. In 1895, after almost 15 years of planning from exile in the United States, José Martí returned to Cuba to renew the struggle for independence from the Empire of Spain. With cries of Cuba Libre, Free Cuba, Martí and his rebels cut railroad lines, destroyed sugar mills, and set fire to cane fields. Within a year, rebel forces controlled more than half the island. Even as they fought the Spanish, the rebels worried about the United States. Their island, just 90 miles off the coast of Florida, had been a target of American expansionists and business interests. I have lived in the bowels of the monster, Marty said in reference to the United States, and I know it. The Spanish overlords struck back at the rebels with brutal violence. Governor General Valeriano Weiler herded a half million Cubans from their homes into fortified camps where filth, disease, and starvation killed perhaps 200,000. Outside these reconcentration camps, Weiler chased the rebels across the countryside, polluting drinking water, killing farm animals, burning crops. By 1898, U.S. soldiers were fighting Spaniards to liberate not only Cuba, but also Spain's other colony in the Philippines. Secretary of State John Hay called this Spanish-American conflict the Splendid Little War, but neither the Cubans nor the Filipinos emerged as splendid or free as they had hoped. President Cleveland had little sympathy for the Cuban revolt. He doubted that the mostly black population was capable of self-government and feared that independence from Spain might lead to chaos on the island. Already the revolution had caused costly destruction of American-owned property. The president settled on a policy that favored neither the Spanish nor the rebels, opposing the rebellion but pressing Spain to grant Cuba some freedoms. 
in the Republican Party, expansionists such as Theodore Roosevelt and Massachusetts Senator Henry Cabot Lodge urged a more forceful policy. In 1896, they succeeded in writing an imperial wish list into the Republican national platform, annexation of Hawaii, the construction of a Nicaraguan canal, purchase of the Virgin Islands, and more naval expansion. They also called for recognition of Cuban independence, a step that, if taken, would likely provoke war with Spain. When William McKinley entered the White House, however, his Republican supporters found only a moderate expansionist. Cautiously, privately, he lobbied Spain to stop cracking down on the rebels and destroying American property. In 1897, Spain promised to remove the much-despised Weiler to end reconcentration and offer Cuba greater autonomy. The shift encouraged McKinley to resist pressure at home for more hostile action, but leaders of the Spanish army in Cuba had no desire to compromise. Although Weiler was removed, the military renewed efforts to crush the rebels and stirred pro-army riots in Havana. Early in 1898, McKinley sent the battleship Maine to show that the United States meant to protect its interests and citizens. In February 1898, the State Department received a stolen copy of a letter to Cuba sent by the Spanish minister in Washington, Enrique de Puy de Lom. So did publisher William Randolph Hearst, a pioneer of sensationalist or yellow journalism, who was eager for war with Spain. Yellow journalism is a brand of newspaper reporting that stresses excitement and shock over even-handedness and actual facts. Worst insult to the United States in its history, screamed the headline of Hearst New York Journal. What had DeLome actually written? After referring to McKinley as a mere would-be politician, the letter admitted that Spain had no intention of changing its policy of crushing the rebels. Red-faced Spanish officials immediately recalled DeLome, but most Americans believed that Spain had deceived the United States. On February 15, 1898, as the main lay at anchor in Havana Harbor, explosions ripped through the hull. Within minutes, the ship sank, killing some 260 American sailors. Much later, an official investigation concluded that the explosion was the result of spontaneous combustion in a coal bunker aboard ship. Americans at the time, inflamed by historical, sorry, hysterical news accounts, concluded that Spanish agents had sabotaged the ship. Pressures for war proved too great to resist, and on April 11th, McKinley asked Congress to authorize forceful intervention in Cuba. Nine days later, Congress recognized Cuban independence, insisted on the withdrawal of Spanish forces, and gave the president authority to use military force. In a flush of idealism, Congress also adopted the Teller Amendment, surrendering any claim to annex Cuba. Certainly, both idealism and moral outrage led many Americans down the path to war. But in the end, what John Hay called the Splendid Little War came as a result of less lofty ambitions, empire, trade, and glory. For the 5,462 men who died in it, there was little splendid about the Spanish-American War. Only 379 gave their lives in battle. The rest succumbed to accidents, disease, and the mismanagement of an unprepared army. Troops were issued winter woolens rather than tropical uniforms and sometimes fed on rations that were diseased, rotten, or poisoned. Some soldiers found themselves fighting with weapons from the Civil War. The Navy fared better. Decisions in the 1880s to modernize the fleet paid handsome dividends. Naval battles largely determined the outcome of the war. As soon as the war was declared, Admiral George Dewey ordered his Asiatic battle squadron from China to the Philippines. Just before dawn on May 1st, <coughs> Oh my goodness, excuse me. He opened fire on the Spanish ships in Manila Bay. Five hours later, the entire Spanish squadron 
lay at the bottom of the bay. Dewey had no plans to follow up his stunning victory with an invasion. His fleet carried no marines with which to take Manila. So ill-prepared was President McKinley for war that only after learning of Dewey's success did he order 11,000 American troops to the Philippines to fight the Spanish and capture the city. Halfway around the globe, another Spanish fleet was, had slipped into Santiago Harbor in Cuba just before the arrival of the U.S. Navy. The Navy blockaded the island, expecting the Spanish to flee under the cover of darkness. Instead, in broad daylight on July 3rd, the Spanish made a desperate dash for open water. So startled were the Americans that several of their ships nearly collided as they rushed to attack their exposed foes. All seven Spanish ships were sunk. With Cuba now cut off from Spain, the war was virtually won. Without a fleet for cover or any way to escape, the Spanish garrison surrendered on July 17th. In the Philippines, a similar brief battle preceded the American taking of Manila on August 13th. The splendid little war had ended in less than four months. Conquering Cuba and the Philippines proved easier than deciding what to do with them. The Teller Amendment had renounced any American claim to Cuba, but clearly the United States had not freed the island to see chaos reign or American business and military interests excluded. And what of the Philippines? The Spanish Puerto Rico, which American forces had taken without a struggle. Powerful public and congressional sentiment pushed McKinley to claim empire as the fruits of victory. Even the president favored such a course. The battle in the Pacific highlighted the need for naval bases and coaling stations. To maintain our flag in the Philippines, we must raise our flag in Hawaii, the New York Sun insisted. On July 7th, McKinley signed a joint congressional resolution annexing Hawaii, as planters have wanted for nearly a decade. The Philippines presented a more difficult problem. Filipinos had greeted the American forces as liberators, not new colonizers. The popular leader of the rebel forces fighting Spain, Emilio Aguinaldo, had returned to the islands on an American ship. To the rebels' dismay, McKinley insisted that the islands were under American authority until the peace treaty settled matters. Many influential Americans, former President Grover Cleveland, steel baron Andrew Carnegie, novelist Mark Twain, opposed annexation of the Philippines. Yet even these anti-imperialists favored expansion, if only in the form of trade. Business leaders especially believed that the country could enjoy the economic benefits of the Philippines without the expense of maintaining it as a colony. Annexation would also mire the United States in the quicksands of Asian politics, they argued. More important, a large fleet to defend the islands would only add to costs. To imperialists, that was the point. A fleet was key to a powerful commercial nation, whatever the price. Racist ideas shaped both sides of the argument. Imperialists believed that the racial inferiority of non-whites made occupation of the Philippines necessary. They were ready to assume the white man's burden and govern. Gradually, they argued, Filipinos would be taught the virtues of Western civilization, Christianity, democracy, and self-rule. Anti-imperialists, however, feared racial intermixing and the possibility that Asian workers would flood the American labor market. They also maintained that dark-skinned people would never develop the capacity for self-government. An American government in the Philippines could be sustained only at the point of bayonets, yet the U.S. Constitution made no provision for governing people without representation or equal rights. Such a precedent, the anti-imperialists warned, might one day threaten American liberties at home. Still, when the Senate debated the Treaty of Paris ending the Spanish-American War in 1898, the imperialists had the support of the President, most of Congress, and the majority of public opinion. Even such an anti-imperialist as William Jennings Bryan, defeated by McKinley in 1896, supported the treaty. 
In it, Spain surrendered title to Cuba, ceded Puerto Rico and Guam to the United States, and in return for $20 million, turned over the Philippines as well. Managing an empire turned out to be even more devilish than acquiring one. As the Senate debated annexation of the Philippines in Washington in 1899, rebels clashed with an American patrol outside Manila, igniting a guerrilla war. The Philippine-American War lasted for more than three years. When it ended in 1902, nearly 5,000 Americans, 25,000 rebels, and perhaps as many as 200,000 civilians lay dead. After a series of conventional battles ended in their defeat, Filipino insurrectos quickly learned to take advantage of the mountainous jungle terrain of the Philippine archipelago. From his hideaway in the mountains of Bayambong, Aguinaldo ordered his men to employ guerrilla, little war in Spanish, tactics. Hit-and-run ambushes by lightly armed rivals were perfectly suited to the dense landscape. As insurrectos melted into tropical forests and friendly villages, Americans could barely distinguish between enemies and friends. It was the first instance of jungle warfare the United States had ever encountered. Jungle warfare aggravated racial antagonisms and spurred savage fighting on both sides. Rebel resistance to foreign occupation was accompanied by reports of insurrectos treating American prisoners in fiendish fashion, burying some alive, dismembering others, and slaughtering even Filipinos who opposed them. For their part, American soldiers dismissed Filipinos as nearly subhuman. To combat the insurgents, General Arthur MacArthur imposed a brutal campaign of pacification late in 1899. Filipinos were herded into concentration camps for their protection. Food and crops were seized or torched to starve the rebels into surrender. The strategy was embarrassingly reminiscent of Butcher Weiler in Cuba. Only after the capture of Aguinaldo and last gasps of rebel resistance did the war finally come to a close in 1902 and marked the end of the westward march of the American Empire that began with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Despite the bitter guerrilla war, the United States ruled its New Island territory with relative benevolence. Under William Howard Taft, the first civilian governor, the Americans built schools, roads, sewers, and factories and inaugurated new farming techniques. The aim, said Taft, was to prepare the Philippines for independence and to prove it, he granted great authority to local officials. These advances, social, economic, and political, benefited the Filipino elite and thus earned their support. Finally, on July 4, 1946, the Philippines were granted independence. The United States played a similar role in Puerto Rico. As in the Philippines, executive authority resided in a governor appointed by the U.S. President. Under the Four Acre Act of 1900, Puerto Ricans received a voice in their government, as well as a non-voting representative in the U.S. House of Representatives and certain tariff advantages. All the same, many Puerto Ricans chafed to the idea of such second-class citizenship. Some favored eventual admission to the United States as a state, while others advocated independence, a division of opinion that still persists even today. Interest in Asia drove the United States to annex the Philippines, and annexation of the Philippines established the United States as a Pacific power with an eye on Asia. As ever, the possibility of markets in China, whether for Christian souls or consumer goods, proved irresistible. Both the British, who dominated China's export trade, and the Americans, who wanted to, worried that China might soon be carved up by other powers. Japan had defeated China in 1895, encouraging Russia, Germany, and France to join in demanding trade concessions. Each nation sought to establish an Asian sphere of influence in which its commercial and military interests reigned. Such spheres often ended in trading and other restrictions against rival powers. 
Since Britain and the United States wanted the benefits of trade rather than actual colonies, they tried to limit foreign demands while limiting, leaving China open to all commerce. In 1899, at the urging of the British, Secretary of State John Hayes circulated the first of two open-door notes among the imperial powers. He did not ask them to relinquish their spheres of influence in China, only to keep them open to free trade with other nations. Japan and most of the European powers agreed in broad outline with Hayes' policy, out of fear that the Americans might tip the delicate balance by siding with the rival. Hayes seized on the tepid response and brashly announced that the open door in China was international policy. Unrest soon threatened to close the door. Chinese nationalists, known to Westerners as boxers for their clinch-fisted symbol, formed secret societies to drive out the Feng Kui, or foreign devils. Encouraged by, these Chinese, by the Chinese empress, boxers murdered hundreds of Christian missionaries and their followers and besieged foreign diplomats and citizens at the British Embassy in Beijing. European nations quickly dispatched troops to quell the uprising and free the diplomats, while President McKinley sent 2,500 Americans to join the march to the capital city. Along the way, the angry foreign armies plundered the countryside and killed civilians before reaching Beijing and breaking the siege. Hay feared that once in control of Beijing, the conquerors might never leave, so he sent a second open door note in 1900, this time asking foreign powers to respect China's territorial and administrative integrity. They endorsed the proposal in principle only. In fact, the open, notes, open door notes together amounted to little more than an announcement of American desires to maintain stability and trade in Asia. Yet, they reflected a fundamental purpose to which the United States dedicated itself across the globe, to open closed markets and keep, those, keep open those markets that other empires had yet to close. The new American empire would have its share of colonies, but in Asia as elsewhere, it would be built primarily on trade. So just to kind of wrap up and review here, in the end, the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 proved an apt reflection of the world at home and abroad. Though the exposition showed off its exhibits within gleaming white buildings, at the same time, the political system cracked under the strain of a depression. As the exposition gathered exhibits from all over the globe, the scramble for resources and markets culminated in an age of imperialism. National greatness walked hand in hand with empire in the gleaming plaster buildings of the White City. Employing the gendered language of the day, one German historian proclaimed, every virile people has established colonial power. The United States joined the rush somewhat late, trailing behind the French, British, Germans, and Dutch in part because it was still extracting raw materials from its own colonial regions in the defeated South and the booming West. As in the United States, European imperialists sometimes justified their rule over non-white peoples in Darwinian fashion. The path of progress is strewn with the wreck of inferior races, proclaimed an English professor in 1900. British poet Rudyard Kipling suggested that Europeans were making a noble sacrifice on behalf of their colonial subjects. Take up the white man's burden, he exhorted his fellow Britons in 1899. Send forth the best ye breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captive's need. European critics like those in the United States rejected imperialism on the grounds that it delivered few economic benefits, compromised the moral standing of the colonizers, and distracted the public from undertaking much-needed reforms at home. Just as populists in the United States called on toilers to band together and on government to play a more active role in managing the excesses of the new industrial order, radicals in Europe such as the German-born Karl Marx exhorted workers of the world to unite and throw off your chains by abandoning capitalism and embracing socialism. 
Dun, dun, dun. All right. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and the next episode of the American History Podcast that's going to be historically related is going to be on the Progressive Era. I am so excited to talk about this. The Progressive Era is such a fascinating reformist era of American history and I am really excited and can't wait to get into this. I'll see you guys later. Bye.